Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the good meeting that we have had. We thank you for the blessings of every service. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you've moved, the clear leadership that you've given. Thank you for the ones who've been saved. Thank you for the good service last night and your spirit moving and blessing. Thank you for the McGuffies. Thank you for this church. And Father, we now pray for your blessing as we look into the Word of God. This one final service, we ask you, Lord, for your leadership, for your direction, and Lord, that you'd give us exactly what we need. And we know, Lord, that you've got great plans for this evening, and we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 4 this evening. I want us to begin reading at verse 6. As we read from verse 6, in verse 1 through 2, it tells us that there is a throne up in heaven, and it tells us that there is somebody on the throne, and of course that's Jesus, the Lamb of God. And in verse 4, it says that around the throne, there are elders that are sitting there, and they're looking and bowing before the throne of God. And then it talks about some beasts that are there that are called seraphim, and we're going to look at verse 6 and following. It says, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal in the midst of the throne, and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and is to come. Thank you, and you may be seated. Sometimes I think that people get the wrong concept of God. They think of God as sort of like an old man in a nursing home who's sitting in a rocking chair keeping track of time, and he turns that little thing over once in a while to keep track of time, and he's just a has-been God who used to judge sin in the Old Testament, used to do great miracles, used to hear and answer great prayers, But now, he's sort of a has-been God, and he doesn't do much in our generation. Well, that's not who God is. Some people think that God is sort of like a God who is mean all the time. And what he does is, if you mess up, he's going to crack you on the head. Well, that's not God. He's a long-suffering God. And then some people, they don't think that God even cares when people sin. Because God is love. Well, they don't quite understand that God is always love, but God is always holy. So being always holy, then God always cares when we sin. Now, the concept that we have of God is going to determine our dedication level to him. If we don't have the right concept of God, we will not be dedicated to service of God. Now, in this passage you find that Jesus is on the throne in heaven and he's surrounded by the elders 
and he's surrounded by these four seraphim. And the seraphim are around him and in the throne, and it says that they have eyes in their wings. And that means that they can see God from every angle that he could be seen from. And as they are around the throne of God, and as it's teaching it right now, they are presently around the throne of God, they are saying these words, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was, which is, and is to come. So he's saying he was this, and what he was in the past, he is in the present. And that's something that we need to remember, the things that we have read about God being in the past, he still is in the present. So if 20 years ago God was a certain way, answering prayers, supernaturally divining, intervening in your life, then God still is here to supernaturally, divinely intervene in your life. If 20 years ago God said, hey, listen, I want you to be faithful to church, then today, then God would still want us to be faithful to church. And everything that God used to be, God still is. And then it says, and is to come. And that means if we live 20 years longer, then God will still, 20 years from now, be the same that he has always been. Now, our concept of God determines our dedication to him. I remember seeing a fellow on television, and he was a preacher, a very well-known preacher. And when he was getting up, he started leading in prayer, and he said, Let's pray. He said, Dear Heavenly Father, and then he goes, No, wait. And then he goes, Buddy, we just want to talk to you about some things going on in our lives. Now, when I heard that, I understood what he was trying to do to get the people to understand that God is not a distant God. He is, as the Bible says, a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. But I also want to say that God is not my buddy. God is a thrice holy God. And so we've got to remember that while we can have a great relationship with our fathers as we grow up, we also need to keep respect for our fathers as we grow up. Amen? Now, the same is true as we have a great relationship with God. He is a brother. He is a friend. We also understand that he is our holy, holy, holy God. Now, the seraphim stand before God. They see it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But there's a phrase that they say three times And that phrase is significant. If they said it once, it would mean something. But if they say it twice, we better listen. And when they say it three times, then obviously they're trying to drive something home. And what do these four seraphim all together say? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Now, as you read it, it teaches in Isaiah that they said this. Now, if you want to keep your finger here, you can flip back if you want. You don't have to, to Isaiah chapter 6. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the prophet Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died, and God gives him a calling and a job to do. In Isaiah chapter 6, the way God does it, he sends this seraphim. Just like in Revelation, you have the seraphim, four of them standing and around the throne. But in Isaiah 6, there's only one, I think. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. That's the temple in heaven. And above it stood the seraphims. Okay, so I guess there were more than one. 
Each one had six wings, just like Revelation, they had six wings. And it says, with twain, they cover their face. And with twain, or two, they cover their feet. And with twain, they did fly. Now, what I get with this is that here are these seraphim, which are the most holy of all God's creation. They are the most holy creatures besides uh, Jesus, Son of God himself. And here is what these holiest of beings are doing. They are flying, but they're covering their feet with two wings. Why? Because they're in the presence of God, and they feel dirty in the eyes of God. And with two, they cover their eyes with their wings. They cover their eyes because they don't feel worthy to be in the presence of this holy, holy, holy God. Now, if the holiest of all of God's creatures do not feel worthy to be in his presence because they feel soiled compared to the holiness of God, we need to understand that this God that we follow truly is amazing, amazing holy God. Now, notice what they're saying in verse 3. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, if you take a look in your Bible and you've got the study Bible, it'll tell you just once in a while it helps to notice something. You can get something from it. It says here that this was in B.C. 758. Now, then you go to Revelation chapter 3, where these seraphim in chapter 4 are saying, holy, holy, it's A.D. 96. Now, you know what you get from this then? 800 and 50-some years before we read in Revelation that the angels are going, holy, holy, that 854 years earlier they were going, holy, holy, and the idea is it says that they cease not day or night. Now, this is the idea that when these seraphim, who are the holiest of all God's creations, see God, they, the moment they laid eyes on him, they had to say, holy, morally perfect. That's what holiness means in this sense. Morally perfect. They're watching him in all angles. And with those eyes that are in their wings, morally perfect, Lord God Almighty. And they don't stop because it says they do it day and night. So what I get from this is from the moment they laid eyes on him for the 854 years, every day, every night, Every moment of every day and every night, these angels cease not to say, morally perfect, absolutely perfect, holy God. Now, once in a while, I'll meet somebody, and I will think, man, that's a good man. Now, I think that about Pastor McGuffey, don't you? And I think that's a good man. But I might have told maybe five people this week, that's a good man. But I never have met somebody that I have said, he's a good man, he's a good man, he's a good man, he's a good man for an hour, not even for 10 minutes. But the angels, and I know this is a little dramatic, but we've got to get the right concept of God. He is not our buddy, he is this so holy of a God that the moment that the holiest of all God's creatures see him, they can't stop saying it. And if we could go into heaven at this second, you know what? They'd still be saying it. 
And so what we're pointing out here is that the God that we're following is awesome. Can we all say that? Is what? Awesome. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. In wisdom, power, and might, our God is an awesome God. Our God is an awesome God. And sometimes we've got God as just our buddy or just the guy in the sky that once in a while we go to, and we have to get that awe back for this holy, holy, holy God. Now, the introduction was just to help us to see how significant it is that these seraphim are saying these things. And as I look at this, I see three things that I want to draw our attention, and I I hopefully won't be long, but I want us to leave with the concept of understanding that we have this holy, holy, holy God. And we want to be thankful for this, but we also want to be dedicated to Him. Now they cry, holy, 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 and what's the first thing these four seraphim cry? They cry, Lord. Now, holy, holy, holy Lord is what they cry, and they do it every day and every night. Now, with this in mind, what is a Lord, okay? What does Lord mean? Anybody? You can go ahead and talk tonight. I'm just going to talk through this tonight myself. So what does Lord mean? Anybody? Master, okay? Now, a master would be somebody that is in charge. Now, all of us who are believers would believe theologically that Jesus is in charge. Amen? Now, all of us who are believers would say that we will submit to God. But the fact is, there are times when God wants us to do something and we don't feel like doing it. Am I right? As the illustration, and I'm not beating us. Before the meeting, I think that there wasn't real good attendance to Sunday night, Wednesday night, okay? Now, don't beat you up. You guys have been awesome this week. But think with me. I think even before the meeting, most of us knew that God would want us to be more faithful than we've been, okay? I think so. But I'm not beating you because you guys are way more faithful than the average American. Amen. Now, but the point is, sometimes people think, Well, if God wants me to serve him, I want to serve him no matter what, but I'm not going to be weird about it. I'm not going to overdo it. And I don't think he's going to really care that much if I don't go to church on Sunday night, if I don't go on Wednesday night, because God knows I love him, and God knows I'm tired, and God knows I look at it on TV. Now, if we hear things like that, if you were to tell your children, I want you to do something, I want you to take out the trash. And they go ahead and they watch TV. And then you say, I want you to take out the trash. And they go, get somebody else to do it. And you say, I want you to take out the trash right now. Mom, I always have to take out the trash. Then your dad walks in and dad says, do you know this size 12 shoe and where this is going to go if you don't get up and take out the trash? And you say, well, I just decided I'm going to take out the trash. Now, if your kids had an attitude, well, I'm just not wanting to, I just don't want to, and 
as the dad being the master, the, the, the mom being the master, the leader of the kids, if they had an attitude like a flippant attitude or a no-I-won't attitude or a postponed attitude or just a non-attitude of I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it because I love my mom and I love my dad, you as a parent would be troubled with that. Well, here we have a morally perfect, absolutely perfect God who is our Lord, and he's asking us to do things, and sometimes we are not quick to respond and do what he would have us to do. It's because we somehow have the idea that children often have of their parents. The children think, Mom's trying to ruin my life. Dad's trying to ruin my life. I can remember one time being in Hickory, North Carolina, and a teenager who was now a senior, was in rebellion. And so I had known him for years, and so I went up to him, and I said, how's it going, man? And the first thing that the guy said, and I'm not going to say the exact words because they were foul words, he said, my dad is blanking my life up. And I said, excuse me? And he again said, my dad is really ruining my life, except he used foul language again. I said, do you realize what you just did? You just used cuss words with the evangelist. I said, now what in the world is going up with you? And he says, well, my dad is ruining my life. Now the guy continued with this attitude, and the guy continued in rebellion, and the guy one day in short time, while his dad was asleep, took a hammer, and he went to his dad's bedroom, and he beat his dad's head in with a hammer. Now, he ended up in jail. His dad ended up in a wheelchair. And the root of that whole thing was that that young man thought that his dad was trying to ruin his life. Now, sometimes parents are not what they should be, and sometimes we're not the best leaders we should be, but there's one that is always going to be perfect. Perfect, and that is God Himself. And they say, Holy, holy, holy Master. Now, the fact is that we are going to have a master. The Bible says that no man can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other, hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, but you will serve God or mammon. And we're going to serve somebody but we have the privilege of choosing who we're going to serve. We could serve Satan, and he wouldn't be a good master. We could serve ourselves, and we can give ourselves a bad direction in life. We could serve society, and that would not be a good place to go. Or we could serve a master that is a morally perfect master. I was preaching in a funeral, and this was a young man that I also had been reaching out to, and he died at the age of 23 from drunk driving. The pastor told me about it. I drove over there and I preached the funeral. And when I was done preaching, the pastor got up and he said, what Brother Pelletier said is right, that we need to bow our knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a 23-year-old lady stood up, said something. There were about 200 teenagers there, and she walked away. And I said after the funeral, Did anybody hear what she said to those who were kind of hanging around? And one lady said, I heard what she said. I said, well, what did she say? Well, when the pastor said that we all need to bow our knee to Jesus, she said, 
I'm not bowing my knee to anybody. And she walked away. Now let me tell you why she decided, I'm not bowing my knee to Jesus. All right, here's the reason. She has the wrong concept of Jesus. Now, we might think, well, she's not bowing her knee because she's a rebel. She's a rebel, and she's a God-hater. No, it's just she has the wrong concept of God. And somehow she thinks that if she does what God wants her to do, it's going to ruin her life. But the Bible is teaching that the angels are saying, no. This is a morally perfect, morally perfect, morally perfect master. And this is the one that you want to follow. Now, is there anything that before the meeting that you felt that God was wanting you to do, but you were not doing it? Change your thinking. If God wants you to do something, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. And it's for your good. And that's including... You're not ruining your rest time if you go to church on Sunday night and Wednesday night. It's not ruining you in any way. It's helping you. You're not ruining your life if you give up some pleasure like maybe you thought was wonderful like alcohol or something you thought was a wonderful thing. Anytime that that master tells us to do something, it's a good thing to do because he would never be a bad master. Now, once in a while, there are some evil masters. Hitler was a good illustration of that. But God is never a master that is selfish or would ever ask you to do anything that would not be for our good. So the concept of God, if he wants me to do anything, I want to do it. If he says to me, thou shalt not drink chocolate milk, thou shalt not eat peanut butter, thou shalt go to church every single day of your life, he doesn't say that. But whatever he says is the master, we need to understand he's a good master and he'll always do us right. Now, the second thing, the concept of God, God's angels, morally perfect, morally perfect, and then he says morally perfect God. Now, God would be like the all-powerful one. Now, the God that is all-powerful is the one that we worship, okay? Now, what does this holy God do? When we think of God, the supreme being, I wrote down a few things here. We think of him as the creator. We think of him as a ruler of the universe. And we think of him as the lawgiver, okay? Now, I am glad that God is a holy creator. And why? Because if God was not a holy creator, he could have created sin. But God didn't create sin. The devil did that one. Don't blame God for that. If God was not a holy creator, he could have created sickness. When people get sick, sometimes you get mad at God. Don't get mad at God. God didn't make sickness. When sin came, then sickness and death came. He is a morally perfect creator. And everything that God creates and everything that God creates and does like that is good. All right, take your Bibles and look at Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1... At creation, we can see the great creator God is a holy, holy, holy creator in that everything he did was morally perfect and good. 
All right, now, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, I never noticed this until I was looking these things over for this thought that I'm preaching on. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, And God saw the light, that it was what? Good. All right, now then, on the second day, God created the um, um, vapor and the water and things like that. The third day, he creates uh, land and sea and plant life. But I want you to notice a word in verse 10. And God called the dry land earth, and, he, and the gathering together of the water that he called seas, and God saw that it was what? Good. Now then you go to verse 12. And the earth brought forth grass, and the earth yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit after his seed was in itself and after his kind, and God saw that it was Good. Verse 18, after he made the sun and the moon and the stars visible, it says to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And verse 21, in the end, it was good. And verse 25, after he created this, it was good. And as you continue, you finally come to when he's done, and look at verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and saw, beheld, looked at, and observed is what behold means. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? Very good. Now, have you ever heard of people say, man, they got a marriage made in heaven. Have you ever heard that? You know what? Sometimes it is a marriage made in heaven. You know why? Because they pick up the book and they do what God's Word says. The husband is the loving servant leader, not dictator leader. And the wife is the loving, surrendered, yielding, submissive, not forced, but willingly help me. Not a doormat. Not a no-brain woman, but a woman that has wisdom that Proverbs 31 praises for her contribution to her husband's success. And the family's good. So when they go with the God's creation for marriage and God's way for marriage, then you find that it is a marriage made in heaven. When we do things God's way, Whatever God creates and whatever God brings together is not just good, but it is very good. Now, young people, I don't know what kind of life you're going to have, but girls, look up this way. How many have ever seen something like cooks in a cartoon and they're going like this? They're going, wow, perfect. Anybody ever seen that? Now, because you know the kind of God that there is that has created you, and you know that he is a morally perfect God, that everything that God gets his hands on is good if you will just go God's way even when you girls are dating. If you'll go God's way and not the world's way. The world's way is sleep around. The world's way is get naked. The world's way is sin. God's way is keep thyself pure and stay at that thing for marriage. Center your relationships around Jesus. Have fun. Be young. Drink Pepsi and enjoy being a young person, but know that you have a God that you have that is very good telling you how to live. 
And if you will go through your dating and go through your life with God, here's what your life's going to be. Perfect. And so here's what we've got. The angels are saying, morally perfect, morally perfect, morally perfect Lord, Lord, Master, and a morally perfect God. Now, God is a creator, but God then is also being the supreme being. He's the lawgiver. Now, I picture the angels when Jesus, when God is up there and he's given the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is, thou should have no other gods before me. And I picture the seraphim saying, when that was written down by the hand of God, morally perfect, morally perfect, morally perfect law. It's a good law. Now, why would it be a good law to not have any gods before you, before God? Because any other God is not even a real God. And if man follows it, it's not going to do him any good. Thou shalt not make any any graven images. Morally perfect, it's a good law not to make idols. Why? Because if somebody takes a hunk of wood and they carve it into an image of a dead man and then they bow down to it like this, it's not going to help them. So God said, don't do it. Now, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I picture the seraphim going, morally perfect law. It's a good law. Morally perfect law. Why? Because it's a good law. How many have ever seen people's lives totally messed up and pain in every person's life and everybody else who even knows those people's lives because somebody commits adultery? Now, when God gives the law, it's a good law because it's coming from a morally perfect God. Now, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There you go again, preacher. And what it is, is you're trying, watch me, I'll show you what I thought when I was growing up. My mom would say, don't listen to rock music. And I would say, I won't. And then I'd go in my room and I'd listen to rock music. And my mom would say, don't listen to rock music. If you do, I will kill you. And so I would say, I don't. But then I'd go and I'd do it. And you know what I found? It affected my spirit. And what you listen to does affect your spirit. Why is it that you'll never see Marilyn Manson in his concert who would say he's a satanic priest? How many, why is it that you never hear him sing songs that are like a gentle song. They always got this like this dark, like sound to it. It's because music does give us a mood. Now, when you hear certain kinds of music, it affects you. So my mom would say, don't listen to the rock music. Don't listen to the wrong kinds of music. And you know what I would think? Here's my mom. She doesn't like that kind of music, so she's trying to keep me under her thumb and say it's a sin to listen to that kind of music. Things like this. My mom would say, now, young man, do not talk back to me like that again. You know what I would say? And I wouldn't do it. You know why? I knew there would be bloodshed in the woodshed, thank God. But I was also thinking this. Watch this. I was thinking, mom's just trying to keep me under her thumb. She doesn't want me to disobey her, so she says, don't disobey your parents. It's a sin. And she created this three-letter word to keep me under control. 
Now, you know what was really going on? My mom was knowing this. If I listen to the wrong kinds of music, it's going to affect me in the wrong way. You know what? I was also learning. My mom, now that I'm older, I learned that if I didn't learn to submit to my mother, I would not be very much submissive to the police. I might not be very submissive to a boss. I might not keep a job. I could end up in jail. And mom was giving me some rules that God gave, but it was always for my good. Now here it is. Sometimes, as adults even, we might think, well, the preacher, like Pelletieri, just kept hammering. He kept hammering. He kept hammering. You know, you're good people. And he said, yeah, we're good people. Then he hits us in the notes. Like, you're not going to church on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. What's the matter with you? No, listen. Here's what you might think. Pelletier's trying to keep you under our thumb. Or Brother McGuffey's paid him a little bit extra under the table to get people to feel bad about not going to church, and then he'll get us under the thumb. Now, he hasn't done that, but if you do that, I'd be willing to take it, okay? But here's the thing. It's not a law that came from Pelletier or the preacher. It's a something that came from God himself Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Forsake not to gather yourselves together as a man or some is, but so much the what? More as you see the day approaching. Okay, now listen. That is something that when it was penned in Scripture, I picture the angel saying, morally perfect, morally perfect law. It's a good law. Why? Because if we do the things that God says to do, we'll be strengthened by these things. And so all the things that God would have us to do, from thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not commit adultery, to remember the Sabbath day, honor thy father and thy mother, it's a good law for you. Listen, if a child doesn't learn to honor his parents, he's going to have problems in life. And so all of these things that we are told to do, if we can tie it to God, and that God gave us these things, not the preacher. That God is a morally perfect and absolutely good God who has our best interest in mind, God. Then we'll be more committed to do the things that God would have us to do. Now, how many do believe that God is good? Amen? All right, so can God be trusted? Is God an evil dictator? Okay, now, some people think, well, he's just trying to be in charge, and, and he just wants to get benefits, personal benefit. Like, God, everything you do, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, listen, if I got up and I don't, but what if I got up and I said, everything you do, I want you to do for my glory. I built this church, and I want you to make me look good. I don't want you to make my reputation soiled. I want you to represent me well. Now, if I did that, you'd think, man, Pelletier, you got a little cocky. Now, we look at God, and God says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all of the glory of God. Everything you do, I want you to be obedient to what I have you to do. Now, if you look at that, that could look like God's kind of, and I say this, and I say it as a fool, that God is a little arrogant. But here's the thing. Is God arrogant if he's morally perfect? Not an ounce of pride in him. So here's the thing. Can God want us to obey him in everything and still have that desire because it is always for our good? So if he says, no sexual sin outside of the boundaries of marriage, no 
no sexual activity. Is he being an evil dictator, or is he being a good God who loves you and wants the best for you? Best for you. If God says, hey, don't forsake the gathering yourselves together, but be in church. Is he just trying to manipulate you so he's got more people sitting in the pew so he looks better? No. It's because it is better for those who are sitting in the pew. So we understand who God is. He is a morally perfect, morally perfect, morally perfect master. And a morally perfect, morally perfect, morally perfect God. A woman came to me and she says, how do you keep from being bitter at God? I said, why should I be bitter at God? She said, you know, your dad died. So sometimes people get mad at God. I said, yeah. Have you had something bad happen to you? She said, yeah, my dad died. I said, I'm sorry to hear it. When did he die? When I was 21. I said, how old are you now? I'm 27. I said, sorry to hear about it. But you know, there are two ways you can look at things. You can look at it as the glass is half full or the glass is half empty. I choose to say the glass is half full. When I was a little boy, my dad and I used to go fishing, and I can remember we were going fishing one time, and my mom was with us, and dad went back to cast the fishing pole uh, hook into the water, and the hook got caught in mom's ear. Now, she was fine with that until she found out later there was a worm on it. And then she went ballistic. It was a good memory. I can remember going down Easy Bump Road, and as we're going down Easy Bump Road in dad's panel truck, we were going faster, Daddy, faster, Daddy, and we would go airborne, and we'd go, wee, because we'd hit a bump. And then we'd go, faster, Daddy, faster, Daddy, and we'd go airborne, wee, because we'd hit another bump. And then we'd go, faster, Daddy, faster, and all of a sudden we hear, ah! And my dad and I turned around, and we saw the back seat that he had uh, bolted to the floor. The bolts had come loose, popped up, and flipped back, and my brother's feet were kicking in the air. It's just a good memory. And I said... Um, I said, you know, um, I can remember dad meeting him in the corner. And I said, we had so much fun together. And then my dad died. Now, I could say, God, why did you take my dad when I was only six years old? I said, now, you've been bitter at God since you were 21. Now you're 27. That's six years. I said, you could say, God, why did you take dad when I was 21? Or you could say, God, thank you, I had dad 21 years. Mike only had him for six and I, instead of getting bitter, I could say, God, thank you, I had dad six years. My younger brother only had a dad for one. He doesn't even remember dad. And I said, there's always something that we can look at God and we can notice that he never do anything wrong. He's a perfect God. And we could thank God for the good things, and we've got a God that is morally perfect, a morally perfect, absolutely will not make a mistake, and wouldn't do anything to hurt you as God, and controlling us and giving us rules to follow and things he wants us to do. He would never do anything to hurt us. He, he wouldn't, and he wouldn't even if he could. Because he's absolutely perfect in this heart, and that means there's absolutely nothing but total pure love toward each of us. Now, as we look back at this, let's look back to Revelation chapter 4, and we're about to finish this for this series of meetings but our concept of God, do you come to church thinking about who God is? Do you do what you do for God? Do you feel like fighting these things that God would have you to do? The concept of God, I think, will affect our faith in him when things go wrong, our dedication level, 
it's all tied to do we believe that God is good and is God trustworthy. Now, the last thing that I want to look at is Revelation chapter 4, and that is uh, the third attribute that they talk about, okay? All right, verse 8, And the four beasts, and each of them had six wings about them. They were full of eyes within, so they see in their wings. And they rest not day or night. They started back in Isaiah chapter 6 at least, so 854 years they're saying this, and they never stopped it, and they wouldn't stop it. They can't stop saying it. They can't say it enough. And what do they keep saying that they just have to keep saying? Holy, holy, holy Lord. Holy, holy, morally perfect God. And then, morally perfect Almighty. Now, the Almighty One is one that helps us as we go through uh, life. Now, as we look at Almighty, you know what that means? He can do anything. So have faith in God. Part of revival is having a concept of the bigness of God again. When I was working on the farm, when I was in college, I remember Mr. Hi- uh, Mr. Um, um, Bill, um, um, doesn't matter, Mr. Bacon. I was working on the farm for Mr. Bacon, and we were working in the bean field, and he came to me and he said, Mike, we're in big trouble. I said, what's going on, Mr. Bacon? He says, well, we're going to lose our crops this season. We've had a drought, and we are in trouble here in Illinois. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, the forecast says, even after all this time and all this drought, the forecast says we're not getting any more rain for at least two weeks. And if we don't get rain for two weeks, I'm sorry, they're dead. They are done. And we're going to lose the entire season of crops. So I said, well, Mr. Bacon, let's pray that God will make it rain. You know what he said to me? He said, God's not going to make it rain for us. Some people want a baseball game, and other people want to have water for their crops. I said, Mr. Bacon, we need rain more than they need a baseball game. I said, let's pray that God will make it rain, that God will make it rain tomorrow. He said, God's not going to make it rain. I said, come on, let's pray. He said, you pray, but God's not going to do anything. So it's not supposed to rain for two weeks, so I went home, college student, and I prayed like I hadn't prayed up to that time. And I said, God, if it doesn't rain tomorrow, the crops are going to be lost, and the farmers need it, and the guys don't need a baseball game. Forecast says it's not going to rain for two weeks. And I said, God, make it rain. And I said, Mr. Bacon said you're not going to, and the Bible says that you're the one who sends the rain. I said, show Mr. Bacon that you can make it rain. And I prayed for a good amount of time, and then I felt it was enough. And then I went to work the next day, and as we were out there working, I can remember us looking up and seeing all these dark clouds form us to look up there, Mr. Bacon. He said, I know, I've been watching them. And I said, Mr. Bacon, you're getting really dark. He said, I know. I said, I think we better get in the barn, brother. And so he said, okay. So as soon as we both got inside the barn, you can call Bill Bacon, Moments, Illinois, he's still alive. I can give you his phone number. The moment that we got in the barn, And it just began to have a torrential rain. And Mr. Bacon and I started laughing and laughing and laughing. And when it was done, I said, Mr. Bacon, check your rain gauge. 
and he checked it, and it had rained three and a half inches. And it wasn't supposed to rain for two weeks. Called Bill Bacon, Moments, Illinois. And sometimes we think, well, God is not omnipotent anymore. And he is. And we've got to get that concept that he is omnipotent, which means all-powerful, almighty. He can do anything. Now, sometimes we doubt God. And when we doubt God, then how could we expect to have answers to our prayer? Now, there are so many times that we have the wrong concept of God so we don't pray. I can remember when we were early in the ministry, I had a truck that was broken down. And I needed a new truck. We were just band-aiding it along. And I can remember my son said, Daddy, let's pray that God will give us a new truck. And so my son is there, and then I've got two other children. And so as we prayed, give us a new truck, I said, okay, let's pray. I said, dear Lord, we ask that you give us a new truck. Amen. And then I went to bed. And you know what I did it for? To let my kids know that I was a great man of faith. But you know what I was thinking? We're not going to get a new truck. It ain't coming. So I go to bed, and then early about 3 o'clock in the morning, I hear noise in the back bedroom where the kids are sleeping in our RV. And I'm thinking, man, did somebody get sick? Did somebody throw up? And so I go back there, and I look to see what's going on, guys? And all three of my kids were sitting in the lower bunk that Drew sleeps in, and they were all cuddled up together close. And I said, what are you doing out of bed? And they said, Drew wanted to pray that God would give us a truck, Daddy. So I said, well, guys, you don't have to do it at 3 o'clock in the morning. And you know what? My kids looked at me like, did we do something wrong? We got up to pray, and they had a dad who didn't have much faith. And I said, okay, you pray, but I'm going to bed. So I didn't believe anything would happen, and my kids prayed that God would give us a new truck, and the next day I got a phone call from somebody, you know, two days later, and the man called me and he said, hey, you know what? The other day I couldn't sleep. And he said, in the middle of the night, I started thinking about you guys. And he said, you know what? God laid in my heart that my wife and I want to help you get a new truck. And this was way back in 1997 or something. And said, we're going to send you $500 a month to help you make a payment on a new truck. I said, when did you have a night that you couldn't sleep? And I said, Sunday night. About what time? Oh, just most of the night I couldn't sleep. And that was the same time that my kids were praying. And he couldn't sleep. And God laid in his heart to help us with that truck. Now, sometimes we've got the idea that God is weak. But we've got to remember that God is all-powerful. Now, then there is this other side of the coin, and we're going to be done with this. My brother, as I mentioned to you, I was fasting and I was praying. I mentioned this last time I was here. Lord, heal my brother. I fasted one day a week for three years. And then as he got close to dying, I fasted seven days. Now, I know some people have fasted for 40 days, so I'm not bragging, but I fasted seven days. I said, God, you made that tree. You can do anything. You can heal my brother Paul. I said, God, you made my brother Paul. You can take those white blood cells and you can kill those cancer cells, and it's a light thing for you to make him better. And I fasted for seven days, no food praying that God would heal my brother, and guess what the result was? 
he died. And you know what I thought? What a joke. God answers prayer. I thought, did I just pray wrong? Is there sin in my life? I can't think of any. And I thought, did I not fast enough? I fasted seven days, one day a week, three years. God, you know I was serious. What a joke. God answers prayer. And I wrestle with that a little bit. But you know what I finally realized? That God could have healed my brother Paul, but he chose not to. And you know why? Because it wasn't the right thing to do. Now God, the angels say, morally perfect, morally perfect omnipotence. And you know what that means? God would never hold back an answer to prayer that was morally right for him to give. Okay? Now, my wife is sick, and I am close with this, and I've been praying now for three years for her to get better. You know what? She's still sick. Now, I was walking across the street in the country. I'm in the country, so I can pray out loud if I want, and nobody hears me. And so I'm praying, God, you've got to heal my wife. She's inside there. And I'm saying, God, all you've got to do is say the word, and I could walk in there, and she'd be standing up, and she'd be able to walk and be doing great. I said, God, you can do it. God, I need you to heal her. And I'm, I'm going through and I'm praying this really strong way. And then I think about this passage, holy, holy, holy omnipotence. And you know what I realized? God, you are morally perfect in your omnipotence. And you've got to heal her because you're perfect and you do what is the right thing to do. And you know what God hit me with? He would never hold back power that was morally right for him to get. So if he hasn't healed my wife yet, it's not that he can't, it's just not the right time. Or number two, it's not the best thing. And so I started praying, God, I know who you are, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust you to not listen to me. I'm going to tell you what I'm burdened for, but I trust you enough, I trust you enough that you wouldn't do anything that I tell you to do You do what is best for my wife. And so what we need to do as we continue on serving this God, this morally perfect God, is just understand he is perfect. And if we follow him, our lives will be perfect. And that there's never a thing that he would do that would not be best for us. Now, being that this is who he is, the angels cease day and night to say morally perfect, which was, which is, and is to come. The 24 elders are bowing before him. And when they see who he is, they can't praise him enough. They can't say it enough. And the elders can't worship him enough. And so what I'm saying is knowing that he is who we're following, let's make sure that we recognize who he is and let's trust him, believe in him, have faith in him, I love the answers to prayer when he comes in divinely, supernaturally, answers of prayer. But when he doesn't, let's just keep trusting him and let's just keep serving him. So does God want you to go to church? Absolutely. Is that because he's trying to control you or because he loves you? What is it? Loves you. Does God want you to keep thyself pure? Is that because he's just trying to control you to make you look like a goody two-shoes kid? No. It's because he loves you. Does God want the wife to submit to the husband, the husband to lead as a servant, not as a dictator? Yes. Why? 
because he loves you, not because he doesn't like you, because he loves you. And anything and everything that he tells us to do, let's try to do it because we know who he is. Let's bow our heads.